one act of compassion that transformed the lives of those four people that you saw in that video. It was one act. It was one act of compassion that transformed your life if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. It was God's one act of sending his son, Jesus Christ, God-man in the flesh, to this earth. And a great story that we tell at this time, the Christmas story. He was born into a stable with some animals and laid in a manger. But ultimately, the act was that he came to die on a cross for your sins and for my sins. It was an act of compassion that he felt for your greatest need, your need to be reconciled to your heavenly Father. And so that one act of compassion has transformed your life, if you're a follower of Jesus. Transformed everything about you. Transformed the way that you think. Transformed the way you view the world. Transformed the way that you live. Transformed the way that you see other people. Transformed everything. And today we begin a series we're calling Compassionate Christmas. And we're talking about that one act of compassion that God did for us. And then ultimately, in light of that, how should we then act towards those that we come into contact with? And we're coming off of the Thanksgiving holiday, and we just on Thursday celebrated. For many of you, that meant you ate some turkey, and probably ate turkey on Friday and Saturday too. And then also uh, probably watched some football. Maybe you watched a football game. The Lions won for the first time in a decade. I am thankful for that. Uh, being a Detroit Lions fan, and you probably thought about things that you were thankful for. At our home, we had our uh, family over, and we have nine kids in our family that are 10 and under, and before we prayed for the meal, I just looked around at them. I said, what are you, what are you most thankful for, kids? And we got all kinds of different answers. I got one kid that said that they were most thankful that that day they got to drink soda, so that was their most thankful for. And uh, somebody was thankful for somebody else in their family. One of the kids said Jesus and God and all kinds. So we got answers from soda to Jesus. And we had all kinds of things there. And if I were to ask you that question, what are you most thankful for? What would you say? And I think about it in my own life. I think about all the things that I could be thankful for. Thankful for, we got a great church that we're a part of. And so I'm thankful for our church. If you're new here, uh, this is a great place to get connected. There are a lot of people here that are great at loving people. And I've got a great church. And I've got a lot of friends. I've got friends that love me, and I love them. That's, that's wonderful. I've got four kids, wonderful kids. I'm very blessed. And that way, blessed in lots of other ways. I've married way, way, way outside of my league. And so I'm blessed in that way. But if you were to ask me one thing that I'm thankful for, it's that one act that Jesus Christ did. That not only was he born into a stable, but he was born into my life. Not only did he come to this earth, but he transformed me. And, and for those of you who know Jesus Christ, I hope that would be your answer as well. Because that one act of compassion changed everything. And so what we're going to talk about in this series, Compassionate Christmas, is we're going to talk about how that one act changed all of human history and hopefully changed your story if Jesus Christ has come and invaded your life. And then if that act of compassion has transformed you, then how should we be compassionate towards others? And in this series, I won't hide anything from you, we're going to talk about the first week today, we're going to talk about God's compassion for us, and then the rest of the series, we're going to talk about our compassion towards others. Next week, December 8th, we're going to be having our first ever Compassion Sunday, and we're going to be partnering with the organization that made that video, Compassion International, a group that exists to release children that are in poverty in Jesus' name, and that last part's key. I got to know them a little bit this summer. I went on a trip with them to Ecuador, and in the process was getting to know the organization, find out whether there's somebody that we would want to partner with as a church, and some of those things, are there somebody that we could trust? You know, does the money really go to the children, and are you just doing humanitarian work? Are you just helping people and feeding people and educating people, which is all fine, but you know that our church, we're all about life change. Well, in Jesus' name, is a big deal to them. Ultimately, they're trying to do these acts of compassion so that people will come to know Jesus Christ. And the gospel's central. In fact, they told me when we, the first day I was on a trip with them, they said last year, on average, they had over 400 children place their faith in Christ every day. And I was like, no way. Like, you, just, you, got, you manipulated some little kids to raise their hand, and you counted them. But, and as I spent some time with them, I realized, no, they, they're a Christ-centered organization. They're gospel-focused, and they work only through local churches. 
And so these kids are being identified by these pastors and then also are being followed up with. It wasn't just something where they raised their hand. And so I, I believe that they're all about life change. And they're all about seeing people transformed by the gospel. And so we're going to partner with them. They've got over 1.4 million children that they sponsor around the world through different people like you and like me. It's a way to connect us one-on-one with folks around the world. And as I thought about our church when I was on that trip, I thought, what a great way to expand our vision. Because we've got a great church that's really good at, at loving each other. I've always been good at that. I think our evangelistic zeal is better than it's ever been before, trying to reach this city, whether you talk about Southbridge Serves or restaurant outreaches or um, you know, things we've done with the Briar Creek Elementary or the fire station or all those different types of things. We try to reach this city, and 96% of our members have at least one person that they're praying for that would come to Christ. So we, call it, we talk about our one at, at, at our church. Somebody that you love so much, you couldn't imagine seeing them die and go to hell. And so you're praying for them, you're caring for them, you're trying to share the gospel with them. And for different people, it's your barista, it's your coworker, it's somebody that you're friends with, it's a neighbor, it's a family member, it's all kinds of different folks that are in your life. And we do a great job of trying to reach the city. But when we expanded that vision and we tried to reach a place outside of just this city, and with the technology and the organizations that are in place in our world today, we can reach people around the world without ever even leaving Raleigh. And so we're going to focus in on a place in the world and I'll tell you more about why it's that place, but in Bolivia... And uh, there is incredible poverty. There's great need there, but the gospel needs to be there. And our prayer is that we would impact hundreds of kids in Bolivia and that they would hear the gospel and their lives would be changed and that maybe that would change a city there. And so not only would we change our to you with our vision here, but we change a city there and maybe a generation would change. Perhaps a country would be transformed because of one act of compassion by you because of the act of compassion that God's done in your life. Because that's ultimately the why. I mean, why would we do anything that's not self-serving? And it's because God's done so much for us. He's had compassion on us. I've heard it said, compassion defined like this. Compassion is when your pain is in my heart. That I hurt because you hurt. That I mourn because you mourn. Because you're broken, it breaks me. And so, and vice versa. If your pain or my pain is in your heart when, when I hurt. And so we care for one another in that way. And that what it is, God's compassion is that your needs, your greatest needs, cause pain in his heart. He didn't just know about them. He cared about them. He felt them. You felt pain, he felt pain, and then he moved in action to do something about it. That's God's compassion. And that's what we're going to talk about today. God's compassion that he moved to action in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to meet your greatest need. You were separated from God, your heavenly father who created you and designed you to be in relationship with him. Because you chose to go your own way, you could never live the life that you were designed to live, so you were forever separated from him. But he gave his son, Jesus Christ. And we've had a wonderful story about how he came into this earth. But do you have a story about how he came into your life? That's a question you have to answer. And he comes into our life, and through his life that he lives on earth, we see glimpses of God's compassion. And that's what we're going to talk about today. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 7. I'll start reading in verse 11 in just a moment. Luke chapter 7. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, we give them away. And we'd love to give you one. Uh, there should be some over there by Jim. Jim, you can raise your hand over there at the table. Um, there's some Bibles over there. You can grab one. You can grab one on your way out. You can grab one right now. Uh, and if they're gone, then go to the response table and say, Pastor Scott said you have a Bible for me. And they'll find you a Bible out there. And it'll be NIV, which is what I'm reading from right now. Luke chapter 7, verse 11 starts this way. Soon afterward. Now, if you read those first, first two words, you've got to ask yourself the question, soon after what? Like, what happened here? You don't just read that. No one reads that way in any book other than the Bible. So don't do it with the Bible. Soon after, what happened? Well, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, Jesus performed an incredible miracle where there's a Roman centurion, a Gentile, who's got a, a servant in his house who's gotten sick, and he's got compassion on that servant. And so he sends for Jesus. The Roman centurion tells Jesus, no, 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 don't come to my house. I'm not worthy to have you come to my house. And so Jesus heals the guy from a distance. 
And then we get into this story. And what happens right after this story, by the way, is very interesting too. John the Baptist, one of the most popular guys in all the Bible, preaches Jesus must increase, I must decrease. Uh, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. He came to preach before Jesus would come forerunner. He's in jail. He's in prison. He's about to be killed. Difficult time for him. And he sends some of his disciples to Jesus to say, are you for real? Which gives me great comfort to know that somebody like John the Baptist struggled. And he wondered, is this Jesus, all that stuff I said about you, is that, is that real? And you know what Jesus says to him in that passage? He doesn't say, yeah, yeah, I'm real. Go tell him. Here's the verse. It's Isaiah. Go. He says, tell him what you've seen. Tell him what you've experienced of me. Blind eyes have been healed. Lepers have been healed. Lives have been changed. I preach good news to the poor. You go tell John the Baptist what you've seen and what you've experienced. And part of what they experienced is what happened here in this passage. Right after he heals that boy from a distance, soon afterward, verse 11, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. Verse 12 describes what he sees and what happens here. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, a funeral. The only son of his mother, a child of his mother. And she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. And so you get this picture of this scene of something that should not be happening. And I don't know what your worldview is, I don't know what your philosophy on life is, but I think we all know that parents shouldn't have to put their kids in the ground. Kids shouldn't die before their parents. That's just not right. And when you come into contact with that, I think there's something, there's something in my spirit that just, that's just wrong. I was, I was speaking at a, a business down in Cary about two months ago, a month ago, earlier this month, that's when it was. And uh, there was a chapel that they have. And the chaplain or chaplain figure of their organization stood up before I got up to speak. And he asked everybody, do you have any prayer requests? And this one gentleman shared a prayer request. He said, will you pray for this two-year-old that has brain tumors? As I'm sitting there thinking I'm about to go speak and tell them about Jesus and I just, I just felt heavy, like I was stuck to my seat and thought, that's not right. We shouldn't even have to pray about it. I'm a two-year-old. Like, you don't want anybody to have brain tumors, but a two-year-old's supposed to have fun. They're supposed to laugh. They're supposed to play. And about two months ago, I was in a hospital uh, with a guy who's a, a friend of mine on our, at our church. He's on our setup team. His name's Dan. A 17-year-old son had gotten in a car accident. He was riding a moped, and a car hit him uh, driving down the road. And it was a tragic car accident. His son ended up dying. We were over at Duke Hospital. And I remember going in there and prayed over his son. And Dan's a big guy, strong guy, older guy than me. And picked me up when I got there. It was all exuberant. But when we got in there with his son, he's just weeping. And I'm holding him. And he's weeping in my arms, saying, do you know what it's like to lose a son? It's not right. A parent should not have to bury their child. That's what Jesus sees here. He sees this pain that's going on here where this woman is burying a child. And I don't know what pain you've experienced in your life. All loss hurts. You lose money, and that hurts. And lose a home, and that hurts. Lose a marriage, and that hurts. Lose a dream, and that hurts. Lose your job, and that, that's painful. Those are difficult things. Lose your health, lose your hearing, lose your eyesight. All kinds of losses. They all hurt. But to lose a loved one, and to lose a child. And I don't know what pain you've experienced. We've all experienced some form of pain. Physical, emotional, relational, spiritual all kinds of different pain. Whatever pain you've experienced, I don't want you to miss this next phrase. Verse 13 is the key in this passage. When the Lord saw her, Jesus sees our pain. 
Whatever pain you've experienced, Jesus sees your pain. I don't want you to miss that today. Jesus sees it. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. He doesn't just see it, but he feels this pain. Luke's using there the strongest word for compassion when he says his heart went out to her. From his bowels, he was feeling this pain. He was shaken at his core at the pain that she was experiencing. And let me tell you this. I don't know what your greatest need is, your greatest pain is in your life. I'm sure if I ask you, what is your greatest pain, you could think of it quickly. You might be experiencing it now. It may be part of your past. But I want you to know this. Jesus sees that pain. And sometimes we hear that and we think, well, yeah, because God knows everything. Like, he's just really smart or something. Like, he just, you know, he knows the hairs on our head, kind of like he knows the answer to every math problem in the world. That's true. And he knows all the stars in the sky. And he knows all the stuff that's out there. And he just knows things. But it's not just that he knows this, like some ethereal head knowledge that's floating around out there. Like, he's just really smart and he knows the facts. Don't miss the second phrase. His heart went out to her. He feels your pain. In other words, God has compassion on you. Your pain is in his heart, and it moves him. And he saw this woman's pain. And so what did he see? Well, you've got to understand some of the background here. He's going into this town called Nain, it said in verse 11. Nain's a very small town. Most towns would have walls around them and then have a city gate, which was like the, the pinnacle, the, the main point of the fortress. That was the place you'd go in if there was a battle. It was the main entrance in and out of the city. This town's so small, they probably don't have city walls, but they have a gate, which is symbolically the place to enter in and out of this city. So it's a small town, but notice there was a large crowd that was with this woman. And the reason why you have to understand that is because the customs that were there. It's customary that if there's a funeral that you join in if you see a funeral procession. You think about it, we have customs here with funerals. If you see somebody, maybe you're driving this afternoon and you see a bunch of cars driving around with flags on them, they got their lights on, it's customary for us to just give them space. You don't cut in, you don't go in front of them, you just kind of let people go. Their custom went even further in that whatever you were doing and you saw a funeral procession, you dropped what you were doing and you joined the funeral procession. They'd have professional mourners that would be there. And they'd play the cymbals, they'd play a flute, there'd be people even there that were professional criers that would cry. But it was more than that in this situation because it was a woman who lost a child. These people were genuinely weeping. Another custom that's important to understand is that Jewish people in this time buried the same day that the person died. We see in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira when they died and they buried them later that day. And so what does that tell us about this passage? That means that the emotions that Jesus saw when he sees the situation were raw. Because we don't know. We don't know much about this young man. We don't know how old he was. We don't know if he was 5, if he's 15, if he's 25, if he's 45. But we know it's the child of this mother and we know that's wrong. We don't know how this boy died. Was there an accident? Did something fall on him? Did he fall? We don't know if he got sick. Was it a bacteria? Because he didn't have the medicine that we have now. And maybe he got a bacterial infection in his brain and he died quickly. Or maybe it was a prolonged illness. But we can assume from reading this text that when that mom woke up that day, she didn't plan to put her child in the ground. And so you can imagine the emotions that this woman's feeling. And the text says that Jesus saw... Not just the circumstances, not just the funeral. Verse 13, Jesus saw her. And here's why. It's because God sees. God sees what you're going through. He sees what she's going through. He is the God who sees. And we see that throughout the scriptures. He's called that. In Genesis chapter 16, 
there's a young woman named Hagar. And Hagar is uh, in a difficult circumstance based on some heroes of our faith, Abraham and Sarah, and they're failing in this situation. Sarah is being abusive to Hagar. Uh, Hagar has become pregnant with Abraham's child. Sarah's emotionally abusing her. Um, we don't know if there's physical abuse, but it's implied that it's very difficult on Hagar. And Abraham's absent. He's not leading in this situation. He's neglecting her. And so what she does is she can't take it anymore. I don't know if you've ever been in that place before where you feel like, I just can't handle it. I just can't take it anymore. She does what many people do. She flees. She runs. And while she's on the run, God meets her and tells her, I, I know what you're going through. And then she says in Genesis chapter 16, verse 13, she gave the name to the Lord. Now listen, this is the first character in the Bible to give the Lord any name. The first name that God's given in all the Bible from a character in the Bible is the God who sees. Because he sees. He sees your pain. He sees my pain. That's the book of Genesis. You go on, you go to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus starts out with this burning bush experience with Moses where God's going to deliver his people and he's going to do it through Moses. And there's this conversation that takes place. And what does God say? The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people. I've heard their cry. God sees. And it's like he sees stuff that most of us don't see too, isn't it? You continue to go through the scriptures, you come to the gospels, and Jesus sees things that I don't know how we would ever see without supernatural intervention. And Jesus sees crowds, he sees people, he sees all kinds of diseases, he sees, it's like he sees, he sees a woman at the well, he sees past her circumstances and talks about her need. There's one story in, in the gospel of Mark's a great passage of scripture where Jesus is really popular. And so he's been feeding people and healing people and all kinds of people are coming all over the place. Then he sends his disciples out to do all kinds of things, normal stuff, you know, like cast out demons, <laughs> Uh, heal diseases, feed people, preach the gospel. And so they go out. And so now, not only is Jesus incredibly popular, but think about multiplication here. He sends out his disciples and they go impact a bunch of people. Now there's really large crowds gathering. Lots and lots of people are gathering around. And they come back to Jesus and they report all the things that they've done. And they start telling him about all this stuff. And then Jesus says, they haven't eaten. They haven't, they haven't slept. They're worn out for ministry, and so they decide they're going to get some rest. And Jesus says, let's go on a retreat. And he puts them in a boat, probably not a cruise ship, and they head out, and they're going to land at a special spot. But they're so popular that the people ran by foot to meet them there, and when they get off the boat, Jesus doesn't get off the boat and go, can I just get a break? Mark chapter 6, verse 34. This is when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd. So he saw a large crowd. You ever seen a large crowd before? Been to a concert a basketball game, a football game. My wife and I have told you before, we were trying to select a team, a local team. And one of the things we did at the beginning of this year is we went to a couple NC State football games. There are large crowds there, Carter-Finley Stadium. I think it holds about 57,000 people. The last game we went to was against Central Michigan. It was the last game they won. So that's back when there were large crowds at the NC State games. And so we went um, to the Central Michigan game. I remember we were getting there. We had our daughters with us. We're filing in to get our seats, and my phone starts ringing. So my pocket's buzzing. I pull it out. It's my brother-in-law. So I answer the phone, and he says that he saw me coming into my seat to sit down at the game. And he said, do you see me? I said, well, where are you at? He said, I'm right across from you. And so I look across the football field, about 25,000 other people. So what are you wearing? He says, red and white. Nah, <laughs> nah that's not working. I said, no, I don't see you. Now he starts telling me he can see me. He sees me sit down. He sees me on my phone. He saw me look. If I would have ignored the call, he would have seen that. He, saw, he can see me talking to my wife. He can see everything that I'm doing. And he ended up telling me the reason why he could see me is because he had grabbed his dad's binoculars and he was looking across the stadium at me. 
See, when I look into a large crowd, I just see a mass of humanity. Jesus looks at this large crowd. He sees not only their pain, he sees their needs. It's like he's got divine binoculars. And he's looking out into this sea of people that are coming. All the people his disciples touch, all the people that he's touched, all the people that want to be fed, all the people that want to be healed, all the people that, that need something from him, all the skeptics that come to disprove him, all the people that are coming because he's the best show in town. And he looks out and he says he had compassion on them. He was moved in his soul because they were like sheep without a shepherd. What are sheep like without a shepherd? Well, think about what a shepherd does. A shepherd basically does everything for sheep. A shepherd guides them, protects them, leads them, comforts them, provides for them, puts them in the pen at night, counts them as they go in to make sure everybody's there. And when they go in, the sheep, if you know much about shepherding, then what they'll do is they'll comfort the sheep who've been wounded that day, scratched. They'll heal the sheep. They'll feed the sheep. The sheep know the voice of the shepherd. And the Bible tells us that a good shepherd will lay down his life for the sheep. And so when Jesus looks out and he sees people, remember why they're coming. They're coming because they want to be fed. They're coming because they want to be healed. They're coming because a relationship needs to be reconciled. They're coming because they lost their job. They're coming because they have the needs that they see. And Jesus looks out and he sees their pain. Here's the thing about your pain. Did you ever think about in your greatest pain that perhaps Jesus was using that to meet your greatest need? I think about some of the greatest pains in my life. I remember before I came to Christ, thinking that life was so empty, that everything was meaningless. And God's using that depression to show me that he's the good shepherd. That he laid his life down for me. That he wants to guide me and protect me. Think about time after, as a new believer. Someone I loved was dying and being upset with God and shaking my fist at God. And telling him, and I was speaking, he's a new believer, preaching, and I was thinking, God, if that stuff I'm preaching about, it better be true if you're going to do this. Angry. And you know what God's doing? I wasn't just angry about that situation. I was an angry person. That was my need. Pass the pain to the need. I don't know what your greatest pain is, and I don't know what your greatest need is. If you don't know Jesus, that's your greatest need. Did you ever think that God would use your greatest pain to meet your greatest need? And so he looks out and he sees these people like sheep without a shepherd. No, sheep without a shepherd means that they're on their own. They're guiding their life. They're providing for their life. They're making decisions for their life. Does that sound familiar? I decide what's best for me. I do. I am my own ultimate authority. I make my own decisions. I've got to look out for number one. I'm going to... And that sounds like freedom in our culture. That's what we talk about. And Jesus looks out and he has compassion on that. You're lost, like a sheep without a shepherd. And his heart goes out to them. And he sees it here with this woman. He sees her need. He sees her pain. He sees it with you and with me too. And what did he see? Well, Dr. Luke, who's a physician who writes this gospel, tells us a lot of description in verse 12. You go back up to verse 12, and he lays descriptive phrase after descriptive phrase. It says, as he approached the town gate, the entrance point of the town, there's a funeral taking place. A dead person was being carried out. That's already sad. The only son, that's the worst kind of mourning in the Bible, by the way. It's a theme throughout scripture. Every time you see an only son and mourning for an only son, it's the worst kind. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 26 says, Oh, my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes, mourn with bitter wailing as for an only son. The worst kind of mourning. Amos 8.10. I will turn your religious feast into mourning and all your singing into weeping. This isn't good. 
I'll make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. That's humility and mourning. I will make that time like mourning for an only son on the end of it, like a bitter day. Zechariah 12.10, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. That sounds great. And they will look on me, the one they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. It's the worst kind of mourning. And that's what we have here in this passage. There's a funeral. It's the funeral for an only son, but that's not it. She was a widow. And so this woman knows what it's like to lose the most intimate relationship you can experience on earth, human-to-human relationship. This woman's already put someone in the ground. It was her husband. And there's a large crowd there, which is almost ironic because this woman is the picture of isolation, of loneliness, of helplessness, of hopelessness. And she's standing there in a crowd of people. A little side note. Oftentimes that's pain that many people experience, especially this time of year. Being alone. You know, everybody's celebrating with their families and there's, you know, Christmas Eve services and there's all kinds of things to go to and things to do. And then even in the crowds, these people feel so lonely. No one should be alone. And I know we're great as a church at loving people. And so I just want you to ask, would you ask your e-group this week, is anyone going to be alone for Christmas? Because you might find out that somebody you thought was going to be alone isn't because someone already is going to be hanging out with them. And somebody you thought was going to be with people who has a bunch of family in town or whatever, they're going to be alone because all their family's doing other stuff. No one should be alone. This woman's alone. She's got emotional pain, spiritual pain, probably physical pain. And Luke tells us that she's a widow, not just so that we can see the pain that's already been part of her past, but to show the financial desperation this woman is in. Because in this situation, in this society, this woman would have no opportunity for any jobs. She'd be destitute. She'd be in a situation where she would be forced to beg because her husband, the protector and provider and guide, would be gone now. Sheep without a shepherd. The son would be the only hope for any kind of retirement plan for the family as a whole anyways, but with the husband gone, the only source of income is now gone. And so with the son dying, all hope has died. And so when Jesus looks into the eyes of this woman, it says he saw her. He's looking into the eyes of poverty. You ever looked into the eyes of poverty? You ever seen real poverty before? I mentioned uh, at the beginning of this message, I went on a trip with Compassion International to Ecuador. We went into some very difficult neighborhoods, uh, went out to the jungle and visited some homes. One of the things we were doing were in-home visits. One of the programs they were showing us was what they call a child survivor program. And what happens with that program is that pastors from local churches, they talk to them and say, tell us the homes where the children are probably going to die. Like you heard that man in the video say that his sister he saw die at 10 months old of starvation. Tell us about kids like that. They will not survive unless somebody intervenes, unless somebody does something. And so we went into the home of one of those, one of those children, and it was a small home, uh, probably the size of a college dorm room. And there was a bed in there, and you start looking around, and one of the things I noticed, there was no refrigerator. But that's not a problem, because they didn't have food to store. It was real poverty. Now, she didn't look hopeless, because compassion had come in and shared the gospel with her, and they had Jesus. There's another, the second home that we went to was a home of a family of six. There were four boys in this home. One of the children is two years old, had special needs, and so we were there talking with the mom. And this home was in a building that actually looked like a pretty decent building on the outside. The reason why they were able to live there is because she would clean that building. And they gave her this room, which had to be the worst room in the whole building. 
Uh, the ceiling was basically, it was a big black tarp. It looked like garbage bags on there. And there was a hole in the top of it, and there was a, a light coming through. They had electricity in there coming through. And I'm not an electrician, but I immediately thought to myself, the tarp appears to be to stop water, and those are wires. That's, that's not good or safe. That's the living arrangement here. And you have a child who has special needs? I mean, we're by some of the best hospitals in the world. What is it like to be here? And you look at this poverty... But see, the poverty isn't just that they need a meal. And the poverty is not that they need an education. I remember after being there for a day or so, I called Shanna and I said, Shanna, I mean, we've been to some different places too. We've been on mission trips before and things like that. I said, I've never seen poverty like this. She said, what's the problem? Do they need an education? I said, you can give them an education, but they've got no opportunity. So you'd be smart people with nothing to do with it. With no opportunity, then there's no vision. And with no vision, then there's no hope. And that's poverty. It's hard to find in America. There are poor people in America. There are people that need meals. There are people that need homes. Totally understand that. But no hope? Because Americans, oftentimes we can think, well, just work harder. Just buckle up. Just do more. And you'll make it. Dr. West Stafford, who's the longtime president of Compassion International, in his book, Too Small to Ignore, says this about poverty. It may seem easy from our perspective to give a pep talk. But if any of us were stripped of our heritage, can't even imagine that, our can-do spirit, our education, our money, our health, and the justice we take for granted. Now, you can like or dislike the government system, but we've got the best government system. The justice we take for granted, we too would rapidly come to the conclusion, I don't know what I need to know, I can't do what I need to do, I don't have what I need to have, and it's beyond me, it's not my fault. Dr. Stafford says that's the heart of poverty. It's not that they don't have food. It's not that they don't have shelter. It's that they don't have hope. It's been stripped from them. And that's the situation that Jesus looks into with this woman. There's no hope. There's no opportunity. She can't school herself out of it. There's no opportunity. There's no vision. There's no vision. There's no hope. And Jesus looks into this, but he doesn't just see it. He's not just knowledgeable about it. That second phrase, verse 13. Verse 13 is the key in this passage. Verse 13 says, his heart went out to her. He was moved in his inner being. It'd be like us saying he was shaken to his core. It sounds almost romantic the way the NIV says it. His heart went, my heart goes out to you. I send you my heart. No, it's, he's shaken inside. He's moved. He feels her pain. He's moved. What moves you? What is it that moves you? It actually touches you at your core. When I think about it, sometimes I'm bothered that I'm not moved by certain things. Went to a movie with Shanna, my wife, a couple a couple months ago. I'm sitting there, and it's this, the moving scene of the movie. And it was a full house at the movie theater. And I look at the lady next to me is crying. My wife's crying. And I'm thinking, no more popcorn. You know, what do you... What, I'm not crying. Like, what's wrong with me? In my more introspective moments, sometimes I think, well, are you just like a robot? Like, why do you not cry in these moments? Like, what's wrong with you? You must have to, like, cry. Like, make yourself. And, and I'm not moved by that. Now, there are things that move me. But it's sometimes not those sentimental things. Sometimes it's not those things. And so what is it that moves you? Because oftentimes it's based on your experiences, maybe the way you're wired. But there's some, you should, if you're alive at all inside... <laughs> Something should move you. 
I mentioned that home that we went into, the second home that we went to where we were in Ecuador, uh, had a child that had special needs. One of the guys that was with compassion when that mo- mother shared that, he back in Seattle, which were, where his home was at, had a daughter, two and a half years old, that just learned how to walk because she had special needs. And so we were all moved by the fact that this mother in these difficult circumstances and her life was hard. Because of compassion, she was able to take her child every day to physical therapy. No vehicle or anything, by the way. Take the other kids to the program, walk to see. It was, it was tough. But this man in our group, because of his situation, had a special connection with this woman who had a child with special needs. I think about what moves me, bothers me, when kids don't have food. That bothers me. And we'll talk more about statistics and those things next week, but there's enough food for everybody to have food, but some kids don't. And I don't know why that one bothers me more, and I've thought through it. I thought, well, growing up, by American standards, we were not rich. My family wasn't rich. I was on the free lunch program at school. I was a kid, a single mom. Uh, we were on food stamps. But we had a refrigerator, and there was food in it. It might not always have been the food I wanted, we go to that one home, they don't even have a refrigerator. When their two-year-old wakes up in the middle of the night and there's nothing to eat, what do you say to a two-year-old? Because an adult, they can understand. I mean, it might not feel good, and you're still hungry as an adult, but what do you say to a two-year-old? See, to me, that's just wrong. Something has to be done about that. That's not right. So what is it for you? What moves you? Jesus was moved when he saw this woman, but he doesn't just see and he doesn't just feel. He does something. Because God's compassion takes action. God's compassion is not just that he sees, but he does see your pain. It's not just that he feels, but he does feel your pain. But that he does something about the pain. God's compassion takes action. Look at the first thing he does. We see three things that he'll do in this passage. First thing he does is he said to her, the very next phrase in verse 13, he said, he speaks to us in our pain. God speaks to us in our pain. And so we talk about the greatest pain you've ever experienced in your life. God may be using that to meet your greatest need. What is God saying to you in your pain? Some of you are going through it right now. God speaks to us in our pain. Well, C.S. Lewis famously once said that our pain demands attention. He says it like this. He says, pain insists upon being attended to. And think about that. It doesn't matter if you have a sliver or, or a bad tooth or your child is being put in the ground. You can't ignore pain. And then he goes on to say, God whispers to us in our pleasures. Do you see all this? I made it for you. You'd enjoy. And he speaks in our conscience. That's for you. That's not for you. But he shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to awaken, to rouse a deaf world. You can't ignore pain. And you think about the pain you've experienced, or you've even seen other people experience, that believe in God, that don't believe in God. Where do they turn? Think about our nation when we're in pain as a nation. All of a sudden, we're far more attentive to God. And sometimes it's people saying, you can't possibly be there if this is happening. And sometimes it's people saying, are you there? But God's speaking to us in our pain. He's speaking to this woman, but look what he says. He said to her, he speaks to her, don't cry. <laughs> you can't say don't cry. She's a widow. She's bearing her child. That seems cold. It seems like you don't feel. In fact, philosophers in this time would tell people not to cry at the loss of someone because they'd say, don't cry. It doesn't do you any good. You can't bring them back. And they're trying to teach people not to feel. And it would seem cold like that from Jesus if we didn't already know that he saw her 
that he felt for her, those would seem like cold words. And if he couldn't do something about it, they'd be hollow words. But he can, and he does. And so what does he do next? First he speaks in the pain, but then look what happens. Then he went up and he touched the coffin. Now that would cause everyone to pause, because in that culture, if you touch a coffin, you're touching something associated with a dead person, you're ceremonially unclean. And so everybody pauses now. They're startled that he would walk up, especially a rabbi with the garments that Jesus is probably wearing. He walks up, he touches a coffin, everybody freezes. And those carrying it stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, get up. I don't know if you've been to a funeral or not. But dead people don't move. If dead people move at a funeral, things are not going as planned. And, and, and we're going to read what happens here, and, and there's a tendency for us in our time period, living in the culture we live in with our technology and resources and research and all this stuff, to think, well, these people are less sophisticated. So they're not as startled by this kind of thing. <laughs> uh, they had musicians and sorcerers and all that kind of stuff. Uh, nobody could raise dead people. They would be just as shocked as you and I would be if we went to a funeral and the guy in the coffin sat up and started to talk. Look what happens. He tells the kid, get up. And so the dead man sat up and he began to talk. What do you say in a moment like that? I'm back. Does he know what's going on? Who are all you? What's going on? Mom? Like what? We don't know what he says. Luke doesn't tell us what he says, but he gets up and he talks. And then we see the next thing that Jesus does. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Now how is Jesus? Isn't he, doesn't she, he belongs to the mom, right? Well, Jesus gave. Sometimes it's death that reminds us that everything we have is on loan including the people in our lives. And so we can talk about that with money, and that's true too. All your money, it belongs to God too. And sometimes we act like it's my money, and God wants me churches and religious organizations, and people like Compassion, they try to make me feel guilty and get my money. No, it all belongs to God anyways. He can take it whenever he wants. Same's true with your time. Same's true with your talents. Same's true with the people, your relationships. Everything that you have in your life, your very breath is on loan. And so he gives to this woman. God's not a taker. You see it all throughout scripture. He gives. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus gave his own life. He gives forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He gives his compassion. He looks down at John. While he's dying on the cross, he looks at his mother and says, will you take care of her? You must make sure her needs are met. He gives continually. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. In your greatest time of need, he's meeting, in your greatest time of pain, he's meeting your greatest need. He's giving his son. What we earn for the wages of sin is death. That's separation from God. But the gift, what is a gift? He gives a gift. The gift of God is eternal life through his son, Christ Jesus. And what do you have to do to receive a gift? You have to take it. What do you think happened in this situation where Jesus is reconciling a relationship between a mother and a son here? And he gives the son back to the mother. So he comes off this coffin, this briar, this thing, that open coffin that they're carrying him in. And what do you think happens when the son presents himself before the mom? Can you picture that reconciliation? That mom who's crying those tears of pain, just burying her face in the chest of her son and weeping tears of joy. I've got you back. I take you back. Do you know what you have to do? To be reconciled to your heavenly father? See, if anybody knows what it's like to lose a son, it's God. So he gave his son for you. And that was his one act of compassion that changes everything else. That's the Christmas story. Not just a little baby is born, but God puts on flesh and comes to this earth and he dies. He lives a life that you and I couldn't live. 
And he dies a death that we should die. And what happens is you have to receive him. He gives to us, but you have to take the gift. And the Bible says the way that you take the gift is by faith. That if you believe that Jesus died for your sins and he rose again, then you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's the equivalent of that mother grabbing that son. And if I could say something to you to make you accept Jesus as your Savior, I would say it for your sake. Because it's changed my life. I want it to change your life. I can't, though. You have to decide. Are you going to receive Jesus Christ? And if you've received Jesus Christ, then you realize how that one act of compassion should change everything about you. Because it means that God cares for you, that he knows everything you're going through. And he not only knows it, like he's passively watching it on TV, he's actively involved in it. He's done something about everything that happens to you and through you. And this crowd, they get it. They're astonished. Of course they would be. Verse 16. They're all filled with awe and praised God. And they say, a great prophet has appeared among us. They don't fully grasp Jesus yet. And they probably connect this to an Old Testament story of Elijah raising a widow's son. But at least, the very least they're saying is that Jesus, what he says is true. And look what they get here. And they said, God has come, Emmanuel, the Christmas story. God is with us. God has come, but notice this, to help who? His people. But go back to what they just saw. How many people did Jesus help? You could argue two. I would argue one. The boy is going to die again. He gave the boy back to his mother to restore hope for the mother. No matter how many people you pick in the passage, he didn't do something for the whole town, did he? And it was a small town, Nain, but there's a large crowd there. And all those people say that he came to help all of us. Because what must have happened in their hearts and their minds is they must have saw what Jesus did for this woman and thought, if he can do that for her and her greatest pain, then maybe he can help me. And he can. And he can help you. Romans chapter 8, verse 32 says this, talking about God giving. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He gives you everything that you need. Maybe not everything you want. Everything you need. What about if in your greatest pain, God saw your pain. He felt your pain. For some of you, that's news. And he moved to do something about it because God's compassion takes action. Don't forget that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for caring about us. You didn't have to, but you do. Thank you for showing us that love is not just a sentiment, it's not just a feeling, but that real love lays its life down. And thank you for laying your life down for us. And Father, I pray if there's any here that don't know your son Jesus Christ in a personal way, they have not received Jesus as their Savior, that today at this very moment they would place their faith in your son Jesus Christ. And I'll just say, while we continue to pray together as a church, if you need to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Bible says this, if you believe in your heart, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, if you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead, then confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. He's in control of all, that you're surrendering your life to him, that you're no longer a sheep without a shepherd, your own authority, but that you're allowing Jesus Christ to be your shepherd, your guide, your protector, your comforter, your Lord. Then you'll be saved, the Bible promises. 
So if you believe that in your heart, you can confess that with your mouth right now. Even silently as you sit there, you can pray to God in your heart and say, God, today I want to call you Lord. I want to accept you as Savior. And if you want to do that, do that right now. And you can just pray a prayer like this. If you don't know what to say, just say what I'm going to say. Father God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm separated from you. I believe that your son Jesus Christ died for my sin. And today I want to receive the gift of life that you're offering through your son. Today I ask Jesus to be my Savior. And if you prayed that today, would you just mark it on your card before you leave your connection card that was in your worship program? You can drop it in the offering boxes. You can take it to the response table, whatever you want to do with it. But if you please just turn that in. I want to pray for you. And Father, I pray for those of us who've placed our faith in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for that great act of compassion and what it does to transform everything about us. And God, I pray that it would. And I pray that it would transform the way that we see other people. I pray that you would give us divine eyes. I pray that you'd give us a heart that's moved by the things that moves you. God, I thank you for being moved in the sense that in our greatest pain, in our need for a Savior, in our need for salvation, that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, and met our greatest need. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.